Welcome to Brothers Watching Disney Podcast. My name is Jeremy. And I'm Matt. We are two brothers that love watching Disney movies. Hello and welcome back to Brothers Watching Disney. Now, hard as it is to believe, we've reached the end of season one and the end of the Silver Age as we take a look at 1967's The Jungle Book. Right, and the reason why this is the end of the Silver Age, you know, as historians would look at it, is because this is the final film that has that direct touch from Walt Disney himself. Because Walt Disney, uh, during the production of this, uh, is failing in health due to lung cancer and will pass away before the film uh, premieres. Mm -hmm. However, unlike the previous two productions, Walt was a little more hands-on with Jungle Book. Both were generally well-received. He thought there were problems that could have been avoided with both had he been a little more directly involved. So he took a little more direct control in Jungle Book. So this one does have a little bit more of Walt's fingerprints on it. Causing some tensions, of course. Uh, Specifically, I know you're probably going to be going into the story about our friend Bill Pete. Bill Pete was the first one to take a pass at writing the story. It was actually his idea to adapt Jungle Book. Uh, He felt that the techniques had advanced enough where they could really do some amazing techniques with some of the animal characters. But Walt really didn't care for Pete's interpretation of the original Kipling novel. He thought it was just too dark for a family film. And I would agree with him. Oh, yeah. (laughs) From what I saw, I'm like, dude, calm down. Considering the response to Jungle Book, I'm with you. We've talked before about how Walt knows exactly what a story does need and exactly what it doesn't need. Yeah. And in this case, he pruned out you know, those elements that it didn't need. And he kept in some elements that Pete created that made it all the way through. There are remnants in this movie that reach all the way back to very early drafts that make it all the way to the final film. Like King Louis. Exactly. <laughs> Who does not exist in the Jungle Book, the original story. But to my knowledge, every single interpretation that I've seen of the Jungle Book has had a King Louis. Even that weird live-action one they did back in the 90s. This was something I found out. This is the first of four adaptations Disney's done of Jungle Book. (laughs) Right. I think it's safe to say that this film really started to get the groove of the new process. And was able to build a story that made you not pay attention to it as much. You know, we're still in that age of the cheap animation style, but... You know, it's such an immersive story that I think it took me probably close to an hour in to even notice the black lines on the characters. Not only are they refining the process, but they're able to better integrate all of the various different parts so that the result is a unified look for the picture. Right. I alluded to this a second ago, but this film was a massive success. We've used Snow White as the benchmark as to the success of Disney films. This one even blew Snow White out of the water. This was, I think, triple the box office receipts. Don't remember the numbers off the top of my head very well. And that was a very big deal because, according to Frank and Ollie, if Jungle Book hadn't performed well, you know, if the animated films hadn't done well without Walt there, they probably would have laid off the animators and closed the studio. Mm -hmm. But luckily for all of us, it was a smash hit with both critics and the general public. So (laughs) Disney animation lives on to this day. Mm-hmm. So after Walt threw out Bill Pete's draft of the story that he said was too dark, Walt gave the assignment to Larry Clemens, another studio writer, and he also handed him a copy of the Kipling book. But he told him, 
first thing I want you to do is don't read it. <laughs> and then when he brought the Sherman brothers on to write the music, he told them the same thing because the music was almost the same story. Terry Gilkeson, he had written songs for a lot of the live action projects like Swiss Family Robinson, Savage Sam, which was the sequel to Old Yeller that I only found out existed in <laughs> reading about this. <laughs> That's new. He wrote several songs for Jungle Book, but again, Walt thought they were too dark, so he threw out all but one. The one they kept was The Bare Necessities, uh, which, oddly enough, is the one that was nominated for an Oscar. That's one of the best ones, let's be honest. <laughs> Absolutely. Especially when you throw in Phil Harris as Baloo. He brought so much to that role and to that song. Oh, absolutely. And to the best of my knowledge, this is the first time we have this in a Disney film. Harris had a script, but he improvised most of his lines. Nice. He said most of the scripted dialogue didn't feel natural. Huh. So he kept with the spirit of what was in the script, but he gave it his own flair. It's really evident uh, with just uh, the way of Baloo being, you know, the smooth talking, cool guy. And I think it was a good choice on their part to have Phil Harris do Baloo with an American accent, as we'll probably get into. Well, not necessarily get into, but we can talk about is that some characters are in American accents, some are in English accents. There's not really a whole lot of rhyme or reason. It just kind of depends on the character, you know. Because Mowgli, Baloo, King Louie, Ka, and Junior are all Americans. And then uh, the Vultures, Bagheera, Shere Khan, and uh, Colonel Hathi were all British accents. All the other elephants, yeah. Colonel Hathi, that, that's a great voice, too. Well, since we mentioned Phil Harris, let's go ahead and dive into the rest of the voice cast. All right. We already mentioned last week Sebastian Cabot. This is his second film in a row. We will hear from him again in The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. And I believe that completes his trifecta. <laughs> Where he is a narrator in all three of them. Because he was the narrator in Story of the Stone and he dueled as Sir Ector. This one, he is the narrator that also happens to be the you know central character of Bagheera. Because mm -hmm. majority... With the exception of the last third, majority of the story is told kind of from his perspective. Because, I mean, he opens the film, but then he shares the spotlight with Mowgli. And then when Baloo comes in, they share the spotlight there. Mm -hmm. And Baloo is a major character, you know? Even though he doesn't come into the film until... Probably a third of the way in. Exactly, yeah. And then just because this is similar, you know, we can talk more about his actor later, but Shere Khan doesn't appear until probably 45, 50 minutes in. But the writers did a fantastic job of creating the danger of Shere Khan with everyone talking, going, Shere Khan's coming, Shere Khan's coming. We don't know anything about him. But by the time we see him, he has that danger attached to him. Oh, and Shere Khan is a, a very different sort of, I'm going to say both words here, villain and antagonist than we've seen. Because uh -huh. I do feel like he has both. Right. You know, his goals are completely opposed to Mowgli. Mowgli's goal is to stay in the jungle, and <laughs> Shere Khan's is to kill him if he stays in the jungle. <laughs> Shere Khan's is, I don't want you to stay in the jungle lest you're in the ground. <laughs> but again, like you said, you get more than halfway through the film before you see Shere Khan for the first time. Mm -hmm. But aside from, I think it's like six minutes, <laughs> bookending either end of the film, where he's not a presence. Right. So in a what is it, 75, 80-minute movie, he's an ever-present threat for 70 minutes of it. Mm -hmm. But he's only 
there for about 12, maybe more. I don't know. I'm not counting very well. I mean, truly very, very, very small part, but... Small but significant. Very significant. And he even gets to sing a little bit of a song. (laughs) Is this the first villain song? I'm talking true blue villain. Not like, you know, the Honest John, like... Like, I'm talking evil character. No, I gotta pull up the list. I gotta see. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, well, because we know that the Evil Queen does not. Evil Queen does not. There's really nobody in Pinocchio. Not really anybody in Dumbo. Mm-hmm. Or Bambi. Uh, man doesn't sing. <laughs> man, don't, man don't sing. No. Um. <laughs> and then Cinderella, there's no Lady Tremaine song. Alice in Wonderland, Queen doesn't have a song. Hook doesn't have a song. Uh, Maleficent doesn't have a song. Mm-hmm. Cruella DeVille has a song about her. <laughs> well, a lot of these guys have them. And Madame Mim sings a song, but again, we discussed she's... More of a... Just a antagonist character. Yeah. She's a force in the way of. Uh huh. But yeah, so. So that little, that little small stanza that Shere Khan does at the end of "That's What Friends Are For" is the first villain singing. Congratulations <laughs> to. I can't even congratulate George Sanders, who was the voice actor, because it doesn't sound anything like him. So I'm sure he was not the person who sang that line. No, it was not George Sanders. Most of the places that I read said it was Bill Lee, one of the Mellow Men, who did that one line. I did see one place that said it was Thor Ravenscroft, so I don't actually think it was him. Mm. But George Sanders got a Best Supporting Actor Academy Award for All About Eve, so he is the first Oscar winner to voice in a Disney animated picture. Mm. And we've got Sterling Holloway doing his first villain appearance. Uh, the, The Cheshire Cat was... Was mischievous. <laughs> Just the slippery slope, you know? He went from the stork, you know, just just doing my job, everybody, to the craziness of the Cheshire Cat. And then now he's Ka. And steals every single scene that he shows up in. Oh, apparently Walt was so captivated with Sterling's performance as Ka that he specifically requested an, an additional scene. For Sterling. Well, I bet that was probably the scene at the beginning then to introduce him. Because I feel like the one where he interacts with Sher Khan is a little more plot specific, and that's where he actually attempts to eat him. It did not specify, so I don't know which was which. I know that I got a kick out of both of the times that Mowgli just pushes him off the tree and then he just pinballs down and <laughs> da, 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 da. It was, I don't know why. I think just because it was a great setup and payoff for that moment because he did it then the first time and then and the second time I'm like, oh, Mowgli's going to do it. Mowgli's going to do it. There he goes. <laughs> and it was just so funny. Like I'm, just, I'm, I'm rolling, you know, because it just, you know, again, I got sucked into the story. You know, that's the, the funniest thing. You know, I trying to pay attention to things. <laughs> Like, often something would just kind of pop up and go, oh, okay. But a lot of times I was so soaked into the story. I just, I loved it so much and, and just enjoying the jokes, the dialogue, the character interactions. Mm-hmm. Another character that I really loved was J. Pat O'Malley's Colonel Hathi. I liked his buzzy as well. The vultures were really fun, you know, modeled after the Beatles and everything. You know, like, what are we going to do? I don't start that again. So the first time I watched this, like, I... Even at a young age, I understood that these were supposed to be the Beatles. But apparently, it was literally supposed to be the Beatles. It was going to be John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Uh And apparently, at one point, John just said, 
I'm not going to do a Disney feature. <laughs> and and just, that was it. And then done. Got conversation over. And then we get J. Pat O'Malley. We get Chad from Chad and Jeremy, another British rock duo. <laughs> well, a duo, not a quartet. Mm-hmm. And then you also got uh, a DJ that called himself Lord. <laughs> Lord Tim Hudson. I saw that. And then uh, one other guy named Digby Wolf. We have Verna Felton as Winifred. Colonel Hathi's wife. Yeah, only a few lines for her, but still, she was very much reminiscent for me of, uh, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but Miracle Max's wife from The Princess Bride. <laughs> Just comes running up and goes, what are you doing? <laughs> Sadly, this was her last film role. Oh, man. She, she actually died one day before Walt. Oh. I just thought this was a, a funny coincidence. Her first and last Disney roles were elephants. Yeah, very true. And then while we're talking about the elephant family, let's round it out. Junior was played by Clint Howard, Ron's little brother. Yes, that Clint Howard that I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Click on it like, no, yes, it is. For listeners who may not exactly know, like, like Clint Howard, who is this? He is a wonderful character actor who has been doing work, obviously, since the late 60s. Still doing work to this day. Mm-hmm. He does a lot of stuff for his brother. Knowing our general fan base and knowing kind of who listens, uh, probably you guys would know the most from uh, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. Or sorry, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. He played the assistant to the mayor. But typically, like you see him, he's kind of, you know, uh, he's got a receding hairline with his hair kind of puffed out. He's got, he can like make his eyes look crossed. He can stick out his front teeth. He looks like, he can look like a real weirdo. But uh, so he's a really great character actor in those ways. I mean... This is one of his early roles. I, I I saw that he had been working since he was two years old. So, mm-hmm. and then skimming through my cast list, we have not mentioned any of the wolves. None of the wolves yet. None of the wolves yet. Bill Wright, who was Roger. Roger. Couldn't think of the name for a second. <laughs> yes, Roger from 101 Dalmatians, the the human human. Did you say which one Ben Wright played? I did not. Yeah, so Ben Wright played Mowgli's adoptive father, Rama. And then uh, there was another one, another uh, who had a few lines. John Abbott played Akila, who was the head wolf. And John Abbott had a pretty good career. You know, he'd done several uh, movies, TV shows. He did a couple of TV shows that we're familiar with. He was in, uh, in the original Star Trek. He was also in Lost in Space. Wow. So... Nothing major, but, you know, definitely he, as I continue to scroll down his list, he definitely did have uh, some great, he did some great work up until the 80s. Wow, incredible. So the star of the film was done by another one of Wooly Ritherman's kids. (laughs) This one is Bruce uh, Ritherman, the only one of the three that actually, like, got into the entertainment industry. He did a few more voice acting stints. He was Christopher Robin. Mm-hmm. And then he would go on to direct nature documentaries. <laughs> but hey, you know. I don't know if this is Wooly learning from his mistakes or if this is Walt's oversight. But at first they cast a young actor named David Bailey, whose voice changed early in production. Uh-huh. And rather than doing pickups with a new actor or finding a sound alike... They threw it all out and brought in Bruce and re-recorded everything. Oh, there you go. (laughs) And then last but not least, aside from a handful of little one or two line actors, 
who are credited in the credits as additional voices. Right. We have Louis Prima, you know, another big, famous jazz recording artist. The King of Swing. Like, it seems to me like too coincidental that the King of Swing, Louis Prima, played a character named King Louis. So I'm guessing that one was named for the other. I couldn't find any definite source that confirmed that. So I'm just guessing. I don't know. Right. And they did initially consider another Louis for the part, Louis Armstrong. I could see why they did not. <laughs> But in, I'm going to call this Disney Learns from Past Mistakes Part 2, they decided that casting a black man as an ape in the middle of civil rights was probably not the best idea. Right. Uh, stay tuned for Part 2 of this in Aristocats. Maybe I was wrong. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Uh, and King Louis plays a fairly insignificant role in the entire thing. He's more of a distraction and a reason to... To put in a, a number, but the number is I Want to Be Like You, which is just a great song. Oh, absolutely. Ooby-doo! Like, I've heard a lot of Disney covers over the years, you know, bands covering Disney songs. And this is one of the more common ones that comes up. Mm -hmm. At least besides the love songs and, you know, the Broadway-style I Want songs. <laughs> Which we'll get to explaining what that is when we get to Howard Ashman. <laughs> yes. That's a season two thing, baby. I saw this and I thought this was really cool. Gregory Peck, you know, actor, he was Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, he was the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, uh, which is the group that organizes and votes on who's going to get the Academy Awards. Uh, anyway, he campaigned very hard, very vigorously, and unfortunately very unsuccessfully, to get Jungle Book nominated for Best Picture. Mm, cool. All right, are you ready to talk some story? Yeah, let's jump right into it. The first thing I'd like to say off the bat is I really, really love Journey movies. Not those kinds, though. I mean, I would really, really enjoy, you know, when they break out and, like, don't stop believing and everything like that. But what I mean is that I really just like that you have these companions who are going on a journey together, you know, they're traveling to a destination, and along the way they meet all these strange and wild characters, and they get into hijinks, and they have the conflicts with each other, you know, and they're all just kind of trying to get what we're going, but the lessons are learned on the way. And I thought Jungle Book just did a great job of creating that tone and creating that style. Oh, absolutely. Like, I, I thought the scene where... Oh, like this tore me up. The scene after I Want to Be Like You. When Baloo has to tell him. <laughs> Where Baloo has to tell him. That was a great conversation leading up to that, though. I know, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. But with Bagheer and Baloo, like, conversing and Baloo having a complete switch of his opinion in that in that conversation was great. Oh, that's, that's exactly what I was talking about. Like, so much emotion's coming through there. And, like, I, I just... It was like, like a gut punch at the end. I was like, can't I wait until morning? It's morning now, Baloo. Uh -huh. And like you're you're watching the colors change in the background. And I was like, oh. Uh -huh. Which, how cool are the backgrounds in this, by the way? Oh, absolutely. The backgrounds are great. It wouldn't be a season finale without me bringing up water. <laughs> but the waterfalls were amazing that they used. Uh, they used them twice. Mm -hmm. The only thing that I can recall... It looked strange to me is during the bare necessities or maybe right before it 
when Baloo lifts up the rock to get the ants. I was like, that rock doesn't look that good <laughs> for some reason. Like it just, it didn't, something didn't look right about it. But yeah, no, the environments and everything. I mean, again, Disney knew. Disney knew that was important and that was a big deal because the opening credits were beauty shots <laughs> of the jungle. First time we've ever seen that too in a Disney movie that, you know, showing the location and just showing everything off. But no, this feels like it's the culmination of everything that Disney has learned in the process of making all the other animated films, which makes it such a fitting tribute for this to be literally the last one that his fingerprints are on with an asterisk mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, we mentioned Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree, which Walt did oversee, which is part of many adventures of Winnie the Pooh. And then Fantasia 2000 includes Sorcerer's Apprentice. Mm -hmm. I loved the ending of this movie. Mm -hmm. The whole movie, Mowgli is having everyone else's motivations pushed on him. He personally isn't that worried about Shere Khan. At first, he just doesn't know better. Then he knows that if push comes to shove, his friends will step up for him. You know, then we get to you know a brief period where he feels like it just doesn't matter because he has nothing left. And then you know, he finds out he was right, that with his friends, he can overpower Shere Khan. And at that point, he has won. He is successful. He knows that he should be free to stay in the jungle, even though everybody else's motivation has been to get him back to the man village, which he has no interest in. Uh -huh. But then he hears this song. <laughs> and suddenly, instead of everybody else's reason to go, he's got his own. I love that too. Like he's like, he's chasing after her and stuff. And then he goes, he's like, all right, I'm going to follow you. And then he goes and turns back to the guys. And he's just like, mm, sorry guys. <laughs> Duty calls. <laughs> and you gotta love, uh, Baloo and Big Ear are perfect in that moment. Cause Baloo, Mowgli, come back, come back. Go on, go on. I'm losing my buddy. Because, you know, Baloo spends, you know, the, the entire movie looking out for himself. And so having Mowgli around is what's best for him. And Bagheera has always had Mowgli's best interest at heart. And then they, then they go off on their little, uh, their little Casablanca ending of like, I think this is the start of a beautiful friendship. Now let's sing the song some more. Well, I was just thinking about this because you're talking about, you know, talking about the character arcs. Baloo does spend most of the movie only concerned about himself, but then he grows to care about Mowgli. Uh -huh. And then at the very end, you know, the old saying, if you love something, you have to set it free. He's got to watch Mowgli walk away. And then on the flip side, you know, the whole movie, Bagheera has been watching out for Mowgli. And so Bagheera's got to let Mowgli go and take care of himself. And so they've both reached that point actually all three of them have reached the point where they've grown past the part that was holding them back because of the journey because of the journey and speaking of journey i want to know exactly how many feral boys has this weird girl seen she's out there singing their her song to herself she spots mowgli mid-verse and then instead of freaking out <laughs> she starts singing about her handsome husband <laughs> Which also, I'm like, girl, you're like 10 years old. Calm down. I thought she looked a little older than Mowgli. Well, uh, it really depends on your idea of what age is Mowgli when Bagheera first finds him. 
That's true. Because uh, Bagheera says during his opening, uh, one of his narrations, that 10 rains had passed. And so that's typical uh, for people who don't have like necessary calendars. The rains would be their way of describing years. Right. So Mowgli is at best 11 if he was like a year old. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think... A four-year-old would be crying like that. I don't even think a two-year-old would be crying and swaddled like that. Right. And did you notice, I heard it at least two, three times before we got to the end, how the melody of My Own Home, every time they're talking about the man village, it's the, the melody comes through as a late motif until they get to the girl singing the song. Hmm. I did not notice that, no. No, it, it's... It's at least twice that I can remember. Cool. That's great. So we've just talked about how much we like the ending. There was one person who was not a fan, at least not at first. Ollie Johnston. Huh. He hated it. He thought it was lazy and tacked on, <laughs> at least when it was first pitched. But as he was working on it, animating it, he you know, came to realize some of the things, same things we did, that this is the natural progression of the story. And... He after the film was done, he said he was so glad that Walt didn't listen to him when he said that they needed to go a different way. <laughs> Jungle Book is just it's just great. You know, it's there's so many words that we can say to describe how great it is, but just I mean, I would just encourage everybody, you know, if everybody, anybody who listens like it, if your story is like mine, where I hadn't watched Jungle Book in over a decade at this point, you know, watch it again. And just have some new appreciation for it because it really, you know, we, we've done an entire season of this. This is 16 episodes. We've done 19 films mm-hmm. in the past six, seven months. And the fact that a movie can take me when I'm trying to analyze it and it can take me and suck me into the story and I just pay attention to the story and enjoy it is something that, that I that I don't take lightly, you know, that like, I'm like, this thing really made me excited to watch. And, you know, this is, I mean, it's the first one that's done that for me. Like all the others, I'm like, Oh, look at this, look at this little joke. Let me look, look at this animation here, you know, where I'm just like, Oh man, this is such a, this is so, it's such a great film. What a finale. This is a great way to close the chapter and, you know, feel like we're just like Baloo and Bagheera. Walking off into the sunset. (laughs) (laughs) At least for now. (laughs) At least for now. Closing the door on the Silver Age. Not that we're not that we're walking away from these films. These are these are all great. Uh we will certainly revisit most of these. I don't know that I'm gonna watch make my music very much, but (laughs) well and what's and what's beautiful is that we we see number one, the progression. We saw the highs, we saw the lows, and we saw the patterns. And so as we are going forward, both of us can be able to look at the Bronze Age and then the Renaissance and to be able to look through, okay, what does that say? What do these older movies have to give to the newer blood? Especially when you think about like the Renaissance, none of the nine old men are actually animating at that point. So it's new people entirely. Oh, exactly. And it's going to be amazing. We had a, we've had a great season. We are going to take a little bit of a break. We're uh, we're talking about coming back in the new year at some point. So just to keep up with us on Facebook at Brothers Watching Disney Podcast. And for sure, we know that we're coming back uh, after the new year. So 
But until then, we do have a little special surprise for everyone. Well, it's not going to be a surprise. We're going to go ahead and tell you right now. Because if everything is calculated correct, this episode comes out two weeks before Christmas. And Christmas comes on a Friday, which is our normal posting. So we kind of looked at each other and went, Christmas special? Yeah, let's do it. So we are going to be uh, having an episode on Christmas Day. Should we tell them what the movie is? Hmm. I mean, it's a Disney-themed Christmas movie. There are a lot of them. There are a lot. But there is one that both of us immediately agreed that we wanted to see. Oh, absolutely. Although it it could also just be the the, the nature of when we grew up. But uh, Sure, sure. Uh, if they don't like this movie, then they're a bunch of humbugs. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, hey, guys, we're just going to sign off. We It's been a great season. We'll see you guys again ready for season two of we're going to say it together now matt let's i don't even know if this is going to work brothers Brothers watching watching Disney. disney we will see you all next season thank you so much for listening if you've enjoyed what we've said today make sure you subscribe there are so many more disney movies for us to go through hopefully we can give you some insight into these and you'll join us next time 